Let's pray. O Lord, from whom all good proceeds, grant us the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may always think those things that are good, and by your merciful guidance may accomplish the same. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, so, um, how we landed on Ephesians has to do with the condition of our world today. And I think the world is perhaps the most fractured than any time in my lifetime. And if this is, if this is really true for me, then it's also true for like 98% of the rest of you. Because that's where my age puts me in this crowd. Now, we could argue whether that's true or not, but it certainly seems very fractured. We hear many buzzwords today about theories and movements that are happening all around us. Someone is likely oppressed, and perhaps you're the oppressor. It's this continual tension that if we're paying attention and we're receiving these messages, that continual tension wears on us. It doesn't if you're basically oblivious and ignorant of what's going on around us, which is kind of like my favorite position to be. Now, perhaps because of this ignorance, but more than that, I think, when we were in Rwanda, um, though we were in the, very va- the vast minority, most of the time we were there, we were the only white people around. I think in Chiangugu area or in Kimembe, the city that's comparable to Parkersburg, um, I think we saw four other white people. And then, like I say, most of the time it was just our group. And then we would have been around a bunch of other people who were not white. Yet race was not an issue. Class was not an issue. Now, they deal with class more than we do. And so we experience no tension with class. I may have created some unknowingly, being ignorant of, of the ways of the land and who's able to sit with whom and that kind of stuff. But, but we really experience no tension over these things that are supposedly great dividers among us. And, as, and you all, so, m- most of you got to experience when Ephraim visited here. And there, we, the, you know, Ephraim and I are a lot the same, and yet we don't look the same. And I get that. But if we're looking, if, if we're looking at the heart, we're, we're all the same. So, I find that very interesting that uh, we were so, received, so well received there, and like I say, lack of, lack of tension entirely. Now, I don't know what their news is saying, because I wouldn't know if I paid attention, if I watched it, but we didn't even watch any of the news either. But when we got there, we did go through the Genocide Museum in Kigali, which is a very, uh, it's, a, it's a humbling time. And it takes a a while to go through this genocide museum. But it was uh, interesting that Rwanda in 1994, when the genocide occurred, would have been considered a Christian country. The largest percentage of the population would have been churched people at that time. 
And somebody pointed out, kind of like the United States during the time of the Civil War, was the largest percentage people going to church in America. So how could a genocide happen where neighbor, children, and families played together one day, and then the next, one neighbor decides to slaughter the other neighbor and their children with a machete? What kind of sense does this make? How could those who claim to be Christian participate in such vile acts? Well, Bishop Francis, our bishop in Changugu uh, Diocese, which is where my ordination resides, um, he said the missionaries that came to Rwanda, they shared the gospel to convert us and make us civilized. They did not share the gospel to convert us and make us disciples. Do you hear the difference? They shared the gospel. They wanted to convert us and make us civilized. But they didn't share the gospel to convert us and make us disciples. You see, I, I, think, uh, I think what they had experienced is a lot like what we experienced with our American gospel. If I, I have shared uh, multiple things from Bishop Quigg has a bluegrass album out where Bishop Quigg is actually singing. Um, and if you have opportunity to find that and listen to some of it, it's, it's really, really good stuff. But on it, on the album, there's a eulogy, part of a eulogy, by Ricky Skaggs uh, for Ralph Stanley, who was a bluegrass guy, an old bluegrass guy. Like a, you know, a grandfather of bluegrass. And Ricky Skaggs is talking, and he, he basically shares the gospel. And he talks about how you could go to church all your life, and you might be trying to be a nice person. He said, but that's not what being a Christian is about. It's not about being nice. It's about being saved. Saved from your sins. Trusting in Jesus and abiding in him. It's just an excellent piece in addition to this album. So I, and I think the two are, are similar. There's, there's an understanding in our world that if you're a Christian, what that really means is you should be nice. And so we work and work and work to try to be nice. Well, the gospel had penetrated the borders of Rwanda, and then it spread. And it spread wide. So it's like a mile wide, but a half inch deep. The people didn't really know the Bible. They weren't being discipled. They didn't know what they believed or why they believed it. So what was the end result? Well, they were easily led astray through propaganda and messaging that emphasized the differences in groups of people the Hutus, the Tutsis, and the Twa. They were all Africans. They were all Rwandans. But this messaging promoted differences between the groups, one group being superior over the others. One group was convinced that they were being taken advantage of and underrepresented. And then they were motivated to raise up and take the rightful place. So you had neighbor killing neighbor, to the tune of almost a million people in 90 days. 
Now, I'm afraid that we, too, are experiencing, it was, it, it was startling to me, to our group, as we went through this genocide museum, to see some of the things that were being promoted in the propaganda to make divisions among the people. Because we see the same thing happening here and playing out here in America. I think we're experiencing this same kind of division by propaganda, by promotion of ideologies that have nothing to do with unity, though even some of those messages claim unity, it's about providing disunity. And that divisiveness is everywhere at this point. It's widespread. And I think there are many reasons why divisiveness reigns in our society. And I'm not a, uh, I'm not a sociologist. I, I, don't, you know, there, I know very little. But I would say that some of the reason that divisiveness is able to reign might have to do with a lot about how we communicate with people. So, you know, by now, even when our kids are now like 30, so when they were teenagers, there were other teenagers who were not able to talk to people face-to-face, or especially adults, weren't able to actually make phone calls and talk on the phone and carry on a coherent conversation with a potential employer or what have you. Now, if, so that's whatever, 10 to 15 years ago. Where are we at with children today? So I think in the way we communicate, and what the tools we use to communicate allow us without this, like, I can type anything, and I can, and, and there's nothing to read other than my words. So you don't read my body language, you don't read my intention, you don't read my inflection, you don't hear any of that, all you read are my words, and then I don't have to see it in your face, your, your disappointment in me, your disapproval. So I'm kind of free to just type away. Well, I think that really does happen way too often. And I, I think the majority of the way we communicate uh, enables that. I think there's also simply a lack of uh, moral grounding in us and therefore in our children and in our ch- what will be in our children's children. I think we have ways that selectively isolate us from opposing views. Just simple things. Simple things. We used to turn on your radio. You had no choices. I mean, whatever. You, sometimes, some of us had eight tracks. Some, some people did. Uh, I never had an eight track. Some people had an eight track. Those were the people who had money. Uh, I had just a radio, and you had a knob, and you would turn it. If you didn't like what was on, you'd turn that other knob, and you'd get like four stations. And then you just kind of had to listen to what was on. But today, I listen to what I want, when I want, how I want. As many times as I want. I called WXIL one time. I, oh, I wish I could remember what that song was. There was a song I just desperately wanted to hear. And so I called it and asked for it to be played. And I called again, and I called again, and I called again. And like everything else with me, I was a little out of time. So this was a popular song at one point, but by the time I want to hear it, it's not popular anymore. And so a, a kind DJ explained to me how that works. And essentially, you're not going to be able to hear that. Because we're not going to play it because it's out of circulation. Well, that's not my life today. If I remember the name of that song, I'm going to play it 100 times on Spotify. Because I can... No, I'm not joking. Because I can play what I want to play when I want to play it, how many times I want to play it. And it doesn't matter if it's old. 
That's why I, I think there's beauty in that because I get to listen to old twangy music most of the time. Where you would never hear that on the radio today. But that, and that's just a small piece. I mean, the same th- goes with how we receive our news, how, uh, how we receive information. So we're very, we're sel- we can selectively choose what we listen to, what comes at us, and protect ourselves or guard ourselves from opposing viewpoints. So we don't even have to interact with them. I think there's a lack of teaching at home and how to communicate with people. And, the, and I experienced that when the teenagers, from when our kids were teenagers, our kids actually could talk on the phone. They could carry on a conversation. There was a difference in expectations. So I think that happens. And then I think that we have this, this, the reason, one of the reasons that divisiveness can reign in our society is because we have this continual march. It's, it's, it's not a drift. It's a march towards secularism, where we have to leave God out of absolutely every area of our lives. And if you are brave enough to bring him up at work or in your school or wherever, out in the public square, you may be ridiculed for that. That's different than it used to be. So I think we may be headed down the same road as the Rwandans. But for them, it is a different world today. Their president of over the last 20 plus years um, is a Christian who operated with, or has operated, with many Christian or biblical ideas and values. And the and and. And, and they, the government will partner with the churches to, to accomplish good for a community. They'll help build schools. Uh, they'll supply, supply teachers. But if we, were to, if, if we had a if, if Redeemer wanted to do a school, you know, I would be the most adamant to say, no, we cannot partner with the, with the state. Do you know why? Because they won't let us tell about Jesus. We have nothing to tell if we don't tell about Jesus. Well, our Rwandans feel the same. It's just that they're allowed to. They are given permission to go ahead and tell people about Jesus. So it's a difference in the way the government works with the culture. I appreciate the fact that Rwanda is flourishing and has rebounded as much as it has. It's, kind of, it's just an amazing story. Some of our own Rwandan connections were on the front lines of reconciliation between killers and victims um, doing the hard work of reconciling these people to one another so that by the grace of God they can forgive one another and live together in peace again. So at this point there, the gospel has been preached and they are making disciples. When we visited, we were simply welcomed and treated like royalty everywhere we went. We were loved by strangers who didn't even know us. But we had one thing in common, and that was our love for and our bond in Christ Jesus. So today we begin this series called The Death of Our Division, which is a study of the book of Ephesians. This book has a message of unity in Christ as God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ Jesus. It paints a picture of new life 
in the kingdom of God. John Stott wrote this. He says, For God's new society is characterized by life in place of death, by unity and reconciliation, in place of division and alienation, by the wholesome standards of righteousness, in place of the corruption of wickedness, by love and peace, in place of hatred and strife, and by unremitting conflict with evil, in place of a flabby compromise with it. This is what this new society looks like. As we heard read in the passage from Acts, Acts 19, Paul found some disciples who were in Ephesus Ephesus at the time. And so he came and preached to them and taught them and stayed with them for two years. And at this point, when this letter comes, he's likely in prison in Rome, and he's writing to them, and he's encouraging them. And he does bring up how his, uh, 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 his, his condition of his confinement and, and brings them up to speed on that. So he does mention those things. But aside from that, there's no real problem in the church that he's addressing. Like some, some letters we read in the New Testament that Paul wrote, he's addressing a specific problem. They have traded the gospel one for another. They, they have, uh, created, con- they have uh, committed sexual immorality, and he's addressing these things. In this letter, this is basically a positive letter, and it covers several topics. So it should be a very enjoyable uh, walk as we walk through this letter together. Ephesus was a port city on the western side of Asia Minor. This was a this is a place where like money, where prosperity, trade, goods, you know, goods and services, it's all happening there. And then thinkers are in the city as well. This is a place that attracts those kinds of things. So this is who Paul is writing to. They liked their gods. They had many gods. In Ephesus was the uh, temple of Artemis, which is the twin of Apollo. Artemis is the god of the hunt, the wilderness, and chastity. It's quite a variety of things that this goddess is the god over. But uh, they liked their gods. They liked the, the uh, dark magic stuff, the occult as well. And so this is who Paul's writing to. So as, we, as we're going to jump into this introduction, we're going to look at who the author is, who the letter is addressed to, the recipients of the letter, and then the message that it conveys. So, if you will, finally, it's the longest introduction into a passage I have ever had. If you will, let's look at uh, verse 1. It says, and we're, and we're, just going to even, we're not even going to do the whole verse. We're going to start with part of the verse. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, it is actually debated today by modern scholars of whether Paul actually wrote this letter or not. There are times in the letter that he seems unfamiliar with people, yet he should be familiar, and if it was really Paul, wouldn't he be familiar? Well, the idea is that the churches of Ephesus would be in this, like, a 30-mile radius of the city center. And so, though he would have spent, just kind of like, you know, do I know everybody in Parkersburg? The reality is, of course, no. I do, I do know some intimately, 
But there are many who I do not know. Same story with Paul. I think the argument is not really worth discussing. I just uh, thought I'd tell you about that. Paul states that he is sending it, so I think Paul sent it. And Tychicus, we'll see at the end of the letter, is the one who was delivering it. So I, I think there's also this thing of witnesses that are, it's happening here that would have been challenging to have somebody else be writing the letter and not Paul. Um, he would have been highly respected after investing in these people for two years. He would, have, he would have known some of them very intimately, but he did not rest on his own reputation. You see this where he says um, he's going to make known his authority by which he's writing this letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He's claiming the same status as the original 12 apostles, the disciples, who were also called apostles. The background of that term apostles, the Old Testament and, the, uh, and Judea- Judaism des- designate this term to be applied to someone specially chosen, called and sent to teach with authority. Now, he, Paul, didn't choose this title. He didn't choose this position. The church did not assign it to him. Hebrews 5, 4, talking about the position of high priest, I think applies still in this area. It says, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So Paul certainly didn't take this role upon himself. He was called, commissioned, and sent by the will of God. Now this is, this is key because this is not just any God in a, in a, in a uh, city full of gods. Paul is addressing that he has authority by the God. Not any old God. Not one of your gods, but the God. The most high God. The creator of all things. The father of us, he says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's, he's designating his authority by the most high power. Paul is a teacher whose authority is no less than Jesus Christ himself. And it's in his name that he's writing this letter to the people. Charles Hodge wrote, the, the epistle reveals itself as the work of the Holy Ghost as clearly as the stars declare their maker to be God. According to Charles Hodge, it's obvious that the Holy Spirit is involved with this work. The next thing we're going to look at is the recipients. Who, who was this letter addressed to? It says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, multiple sources tell me this, so I believe it is true, that early manuscripts are missing this piece that say, who are in Ephesus. So there's some thought that this might be a letter that was meant to circulate around different churches. And at some point, Ephesus, it landed in Ephesus and didn't move beyond it and then became claimed by Ephesus. So later manuscripts say, uh, who are in Ephesus? To the saints, who are in Ephesus? I'm not sure how, I'm not sure what difference that makes at all. Uh, it's been claimed by the church. The church had to approve the books that were entered into the uh, New Testament into the canon, 
and this made it. So it's, that's good enough for me. I think the more important thing than whether this is really to the, to the people of Ephesus or not is this word saints, which could also be translated as holy ones. The Greek word for holy is something like uh, hygos, uh, and, and they add a suffix to the end of it, and, it, and it's like hagios. I'm doing horrible at that. But, uh, but the suffix on the end of it means holy ones. Well, we in our English language translate that as saints. Now, I think this for our world can be a little confusing. And then if you're old like me, you probably remember Bibles that when you open them instead of um, my, this one, when I open it, it just says Luke. It just says Mark. It just says Matthew. But... You may have a, a Bible that you used to use that would say St. Mark, St. Matthew, which seems like, okay, they're in a different category altogether because they're saints. And that may be what you're thinking then when you're reading this, the saints in Ephesus. Is that the elders of the church? Is it some special class of people who really are Christian-like? The answer is no. The answer is the holy ones are the people of God. You are saints. You are holy ones of God. One of the interesting pieces is that um, these, are the, these are the people who are faithful in Christ Jesus, meaning they are believers. You can't be a saint or a holy one without being a believer. And you can't be a believer without being a saint or a holy one. They go together. This is what the Bible calls believers. It calls you a saint. And this is why we say that we are simultaneously saints and sinners. That we bear the new title and position in Christ. We understand this through the gospel. Through faith, we believe and we are in Christ Jesus. And then we are, what is our identity? Our identity is in Christ because his righteousness covers us. Yet we also, through the Bible and our own experience, understand that we're still battling the old man, the old nature, the sin nature in this life. So this is the balance of Scripture, that we are both sinners and saints at the same time. Next thing we're going to see is the message. Verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as churched people, we might take these words for granted. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This grace and peace, though, as we will see, this is a cosmic grace, a cosmic peace that he brings as the Lord is establishing his kingdom here on earth. And the the Lord delivers his saints from the chaos of the world and brings them into peace by grace. This message that this letter is going to unfold for us is about the historic work of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit then and now to build this new society in the midst of an old society. So we are to be a new people in his kingdom. His kingdom offers us peace 
Because as we are entering into the kingdom, we are reconciled back to God, who we've been alienated from since chapter 3 of Genesis. This is the story of how God became man to suffer on the cross and shed his own blood as a sacrifice for us to cover our sins so that we might be brought into the family of God. This sacrifice we know was sufficient because God raised him from the dead, from the grave, and then he raised him and exalted him to this very high position above all competing spiritual forces out there. And he seated him at his right hand. We, too, because of our being united in Christ, and Christ actually redeeming us before the foundations of the world, by faith, we mysteriously have shared then in his sufferings, we have shared in his death and, and death to sin. And then we are raised with him and seated with him in the heavenlies. Now, when we get to that part, I can't do much better than that to explain it. This is beyond my little mind's comprehension. I'm just saying what scripture says. And these things it says are true of us. That's why this is not our home. This reconciliation to God impacts, though, not just our... It brings peace because we have peace with our Creator, who we were alienated from. But it's not just that. We also then are reconciled to one another, to our, our friends, our neighbors. We are God's new society that He is creating. It's a single humanity that belongs to Him, made up of both Jews and Gentiles. This is what this is going to get to. There are going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in this family. There is nothing, there is nothing that separates us now. Now, I will, I will preach more on that when we get there. But we can say, thanks be to God, what the answer is to all of our, our, our divisiveness is the gospel. I, I talk about things when I say, well, you know, I hear your problem, but what your real problem is, is Jesus. You need to believe the gospel and have it applied in your life in that particular area. And the gospel has a way of revealing where we're going astray. And we repent and believe in a continual way. But the answer to our divisiveness, the answer to all the problems that exist out here, it really is Jesus. So it, we're going to find unity in Christ. And it doesn't matter what color somebody's skin is, there will be people from everywhere in this body. There are currently. Our identity is in Christ, and that will form and shape who we are and how we act in the world. John Stott wrote this. He said, we are the family of God the Father, the body of Jesus Christ, his Son, and the temple or dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. I thought that was very succinct and a great way to see that. So we are to live our lives as a testimony to this amazing thing that God has done. We model this. This is, this is kind of shooting forward to like what's happening in this letter and what's to come. We model 
this in the unity and diversity in our common life. We model this through godly living in response to the gift of grace that we've received. We model this reality in our relationships at home and at work, mutually submitting to one another and serving one another. We're going, to see, we're, going to, we're going to see these things play out. And then we model this in our collective fight against evil forces. That thing of taking actually a real stand and being firm and steadfast in our stand as opposed to capitulating to the evil forces and compromising with them. This becomes the roadmap for the coming weeks as we're going to walk through this letter. By this glorious gospel, we are united to Christ, and we experience unity within the family of God and the body of Christ as the holy ones of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. O Lord, we give you thanks. We thank you for what seemingly are simple words, but convey that you desire so much to reach our ears and our hearts, that you use an apostle like Paul, that you blinded him and gave him his sight and um, brought him to his senses, that he may serve you by uh, delivering your gospel to all these people, including us. Lord, we recognize that if this message, if this letter came through Paul, through you, by your own will, as the God of all creation, as the God of all the universe. Lord, may you give us ears to hear what you have to say. May we inwardly digest what you've given us in this letter, that we may meditate on these things. Lord, we ask that you would continue to transform us and you ground us, as you ground us in your word so that we know what we believe and why we believe it, so that we would not be led astray by the propaganda that we're being exposed to in our very day. Lord, we ask for your blessings as we continue to study this letter over the many coming weeks, that uh, our, our lives would be different because we will have been dwelling with you in your word. We ask all these things through Christ's holy name. Amen.